Welcome back, listeners, to Fantastic Voyage, a podcast about David Bowie. I am your co-host, Jesse. And I am Jesse's co-host, John. Today, we are talking about the David Bowie album known as Space Oddity, but officially titled David Bowie for the second time. Um, Perhaps because he didn't want us to remember the 1967 self-titled album we didn't forget though did we we people don't forget we we recorded a about two hours worth of content (laughs) on that record Uh, sorry david but we love it and there's nothing you can do about it yeah and a hot take i I might even like it more than this one uh we'll see we'll have to dive a bit deeper um yeah so i am uh i'm just pulling myself out of the gutter i i just was floored by the uh, second dose of the COVID vaccine for the last 48 hours, I've been comatose, but I'm feeling well now it's Friday night, got the weekend ahead of me and I'm excited to talk about uh, some more Bowie. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot has happened since the last record hasn't there. I mean, there's a, a lot of bad things for David, right? I mean, you know, Deerham lost interest in him uh, as soon as his debut flopped. That last record we talked about, it, it didn't do well. So they opted not to renew his contract. So he's labelless for a while. Hermione Farthingale broke things off with him in the middle of uh, filming the Love You Chill Tuesday film. Uh, she took off for a dancing role in Norway and met another man there. So, you know, his first serious relationship ended and that really crushed him. His father also died during the recording of this album. Uh, he's in a bit of a dark, a dark place. Uh, he, he tried his hand at acting. He, he landed a lead in a, an ice cream commercial. And I know you tweeted out a link to a, a very low budget movie he was in called The Image. Yeah, I, I love that little piece. It's, it's not much more than like 10 minutes long. It's a very, really short film. Uh, it's got some for kind of around the same time, uh, night of the living dead it's got those kind of vibes it's kind of he's in a house uh somebody paints him or paints a a a child or a boy they call it and uh he comes to life and kind of stalks this guy throughout his house at night you you have to see it it's yeah i tweeted it out earlier this week um it's for anybody that's even mildly into horror I definitely, I recommend checking it out. And if you're into Bowie, you, you definitely have to see it. Well, and the beauty of it too, is it won't take much time out of your day. Uh, even if you don't like it, it's only what, like 12 minutes. Or yeah. Something it it like won't that. even take up your full coffee break. You could still get your coffee, watch it, go to the there's, bathroom. I think there's songs on this record that are longer than that movie. Awesome. So. Yeah. yeah. So this record uh, comes out on Mercury records. Uh, Calvin Mark Lee was an assistant European director for the label He was supposedly a really big fan of the first record. He sent Bowie all sorts of fan mail saying how much he liked it. Not all sorts of fan mail. I think it was like one one letter. But, uh, you know, Bowie was intrigued. One thing leads to another, and they actually wind up having an affair. And David uses that to kind of weasel his way into a deal with Mercury Records. He also meets his first wife, Angie Bowie, through Calvin Mark Lee because they were both screwing Calvin at the same time, as Bowie would say. He'd famously say, "We I met Angie because we were both screwing the same bloke. Uh, 
apparently Calvin had a, a wall of, a wall of fame near his bed of all his sexual encounters. And during one with Angie, she, she picked a picture of, of David out of the bunch and she was really enamored with him. So that's kind of a really weird thing that happened, but. Well, their relationship, their relationship, Angie and David's was, was quite fluid. Like they were married. They had a, a son together, but they were, they had multiple partners throughout. Like there was no, uh, there, it was an open relationship. It's it's a messed up, not even love triangle. It's like a love rectangle because before Angie was screwing Calvin Mark Lee, she was an item with the head of Mercury Records, Reisner, Lou Reisner. And he got pissed off at Calvin Mark Lee and refused to listen to him when he said Bowie had Space Oddity. You know, this great song with massive single potential, you got to hear it. But Reisner wasn't having any of it because Calvin and David were both doing his girlfriend. So they had to do a, a bit of a backdoor deal. They did it behind his back. I think in order to get uh, Reisner to sign off on it, Angie apparently threatened to stop seeing him if he didn't sign Bowie. So one thing or three or four or five things lead to another and Bowie releases the album we're going to talk about today, Space Oddity on Mercury Records. So yeah, let's, let's get right into uh, to the, to the title track. Side A kicks off with the title track, Space Oddity, or maybe not the title track. It's technically <laughs> technically called David Bowie. Um, you mentioned that this song had lots of uh, hit potential. Uh, Tony Visconti didn't seem to think so, or at least he thought it was a novelty kind of. And he, he yeah. kind of, I don't even think he, because he produced the album, but Gus Dudgeon uh, produced this song. And he also produced Wild Eyed Boy from Free Cloud originally. Uh, we'll, we'll get into right. We'll get yeah, into the B side. Yeah. We'll get into the the Visconti version of that when we get to it. Um, but yeah, so Space Oddity was uh, <laughs> it. It definitely lived up to that potential. I'm not sure how it did in the U.S. I, I don't think the album sold very well in America, did it? didn't sell well in the UK. I think it only sold like 5,000 copies in the UK as well. The album just didn't do good in general. But they played the song a lot leading up to the the the, the moon landing. It was, I think it was recorded like a, a couple months before it happened or something, right? They kind of rush released it so that it would uh, predate the moon landing. I mean, right. I, in, in many ways, Visconti is right. I mean, I it's not that he didn't think it didn't have single potentials that he thought it did and that you know Bowie would kind of get pigeonholed into that right you know and it is a novelty song in many ways so I get the skepticism initially uh especially if you consider the time like you you mentioned you know moon mania is sweeping the globe not only is there the impending Apollo moon landing but everyone else is also sort of enamored with Kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey and, and yeah. Bowie was really into that yeah he he's was cited as saying that this was the main inspiration for it. I think he said he saw it a couple times in the theater. John Lennon was rumored to watch it like every week. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Bowie was into the film, uh, but he had a, a much less sensationalist appreciation for the movie. Everyone kind of, it, it's a movie, it's got a, a million different interpretations, but it's ultimately about the, the evolution of mankind, I guess, if you have to sum it up in, into, you know, one sentence, but. He was more interested in the the alienation and isolation of the astronauts in the film. He felt he shared those feelings with them. Bowie biographer Mark Spitz cites one scene in particular where the 
one of the astronauts is on the phone with his daughter and she's asking him like, you know, daddy, are you coming to my birthday party tomorrow? And he says, no, I, I have to work. I'm going to space, remember? And then he asks if he can speak to his wife, but she's out shopping. So she's unavailable. He has to speak with his older daughter, but she's in the washroom. So she can't talk. It's a really frightening thought, right? Being homesick. He phones home and he can't even get a hold of anybody except for his little girl who he breaks this terrible news to. You know, so he's, he's, he's experiencing this disconnect from the world. I, I recently started watching this movie. It's, it's kind of long and I, I actually I fell asleep like halfway through, but they like it, they FaceTimed that that call was like a FaceTime. And this is it felt like a COVID birthday party, didn't it? Yeah, kind of. It, it, it's it, it very much so. Yeah. Uh, but I, th- I thought that was kind of neat how, you know, you always kind of look when, when they look into the future in 1969, it's you kind of think, oh, is this sometimes the things that they think up are ridiculous. Sometimes they're like, oh, they actually thought of that in the 80s. Like it didn't take till 2001 or at least I think that's when it maybe took place. But uh, yeah, it's kind of neat. Like, yeah, we we are fit here. We're doing it right now as we record this episode here in what seems to be the millionth week of lockdown on the prairies. And that's like, that's ultimately what Bowie's trying to tap into with space oddity, right? Is the, the alienation aspect. Uh, yes, it is a song about a spaceman, but it, it's really much more than that. That's merely a guise for the underlying theme of isolation and alienation. So is it a novelty song? That's, it's not really a yes or no question because the, the answer is very multifaceted. And I think at its core, the answer to that is no. It's kind of like his first, maybe his first epic song. Bowie's got a lot of songs that can be classified, at least in my mind, as like an, an epic track uh, where there's just, you know, the, the arrangement is significant and the instrumentation is, is cool. Uh, Rick Wakeman plays Mellotron on it, which adds a really cool kind of atmosphere to the song. Uh, it's just kind of it's got it's got a few breakdown parts. It's kind I mean, it was probably his best track to this point. I know we're fans of a lot of those early songs, uh, but this was a step forward in his career musically uh, and as a songwriter. The, the part that really sends chills down my spine when I play this song or the, the parts where he mentions like letting go. You know, I, I think my spaceship knows which way to go. He's giving up on trying to change the course he's on and he's letting something else take charge that the spaceship is in control now it knows which way to go i don't it's almost like predestination i have no control i'm accepting my fate planet earth is blue and there's nothing i can do you know nothing he does or says is going to change the course he's on it's like his life has been scripted he's almost relieved and, and happy to just be set free and to come to this realization he's embracing defeat or maybe not even defeat but just accepting what the universe has has fated him to be right and then kind of like when he he is released at the end with the final ground control to major tom your circuit's dead there's something wrong it's that that part is it's horrifying to think you know this is i mean i've i have this morbid obsession with tragedy like i i'm I find the Titanic disaster fascinating. I find the Challenger and the Columbia disasters fascinating. Um, horrible, obviously, but fascinating uh, nonetheless. And it's kind of, you're, he's putting himself right there where, you know, this this is it. And it's it's kind of, it's haunting. 
I think what separates this song from the pack is the underlying theme. I had suspected on the last record that there were maybe a few instances where David was writing autobiographically. I think that's most certainly the case here on Space Oddity. Uh, not only is it kind of obvious just from the lyrics, but it's something he would even confirm later in interviews, you know, that he is Major Tom. Now, the, yeah. the song the song at its core, it's a tale of alienation and someone experiencing a disconnect from the world. It, it very much still was a novelty song. And I, I think that's a huge reason why it's so popular. It's, it's the one about a spaceman, right? It's ground control to Major Tom. That's iconic. You know, everybody and their mom knows that line, but the reason it stood the test of time and the reason it's considered so classic and so brilliant is for these other reasons, you know, the alienation, the metaphor, and also just because of how great of a story it is, especially when you tie that all together, you know, the metaphor and the surface level, it's a brilliant piece of songwriting. And I think it's worth every last ounce of acclaim it's received. Yeah. Uh, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that it's semi autobiographical because is that Major Tom that appears in the Black Star video? It, it is. It, it yeah. is, right? We, so, we really should have been able to see Bowie's death coming from those videos. I'm sure many people did. Yeah. I think it's crazy that he was able to connect that story and the underlying themes together. Like, think of how hard it would be to write this song. Hey, I'm feeling alienated. I'm going to write a song about it. You know, it'd be kind of like some kind of like Mac DeMarco sad boy type of song. You just pick up an acoustic guitar and just strum away and, you know, sing the blues. But... He, he makes it this big cohesive story that's so easy to follow, but the entire time he's building up this huge depressing metaphor and like at 21 years old, I, yeah. it's scary. It gives me anxiety thinking of even trying to write a song like this. You know, he's, and he's that's kind of, a, that's kind of an underlying theme on this album. There's a lot of metaphor. There's a lot of like, it's kind of, you have to decipher a lot of the, the lyrics to kind of get to the meaning of it. Uh, I kind of mm -hmm. had to take to listening to, or reading interviews where he explains it a little bit to, to really go, Oh, that's what he's getting at. Um, not with this one, but with some other ones on this, on this album, George Martin turned this project down. Uh, right. It was originally offered to him. Now we talked about uh, butterfly effects on the last episode. Now, can you imagine? And I mean, this, this song, actually a few songs in this album in particular would have been, I, I could see George Martin, wanting to do it uh or doing a good job with them because they you know he's got that classical background mm -hmm. it, it would have been neat just to hear that and and where imagine if he sticks with like the two of them stick together and that's what george martin does throughout the 70s it would have been neat ken pitt was really upset about that wasn't he in his uh his autobiography apparently there's a passage where it's like an all capital or no i think maybe it was in his diary or something but he just wrote in all caps george martin is fallible <laughs> he, he was really upset that david wouldn't or that uh that george wouldn't record this song but so yeah so gus dudgeon record or produced this track uh he went on to produce some of elton john's work who also wrote a song uh about a rocket man uh there's actually another connection that I kind of pieced together. Uh, this, so there's a book called The Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury that's kind of a bunch of little stories. Uh, they're like short stories. And one of them is called Zero Hour. Uh, and that's a lyric in Rocket Man. And Bowie also, uh, the song Karma Man is kind of about The Illustrated Man. Uh, it's about the tattoos on his body. It's pictured on the arms of the karma man, who's the mm -hmm. illustrated man. It's 
anyway, just kind of a weird, I, I'm, I always try to connect little things like that. And it's, it's probably meaningless, but we had anyway. one of our, one of our followers made an interesting connection to the last album that I, I think kind of ties into this song and this record. Uh, I can't remember his handle, but it, he goes by gospel according to Tony day. And he had mentioned that it was perhaps David's schizophrenic half-brother Terry, who was maybe an, an inspiration for the, the silliness of the first record, that that was like a form of escapism. But it, it's almost like the movie Space Odyssey had like the, the opposite effect on him. It was a very dark movie in many ways. So he winds up pouring his heart out on this record, and it's the complete opposite of an escapist record, right? The first one I could see being interpreted as that, but this one is just, right. he's not doing that here. Well, and to add to, you said there's a lot of, you know, kind of unfortunate things happening to Bowie around this time. Also, his his brother, who he's very close with, his half-brother, Terry, um, was admitted to a psych ward around this time. He was mm -hmm. schizophrenic. I wonder if maybe, like, I could see maybe a connection there where where he's Major Tom and he, you know, as you enter the psych ward, you are, your circuit's dead. There's, you know, you're you're now cut off from, you know, the outside world. Uh, maybe a bit of a stretch it makes sense though yeah i mean whoever major tom is a a very troubled character so whether that's david's half brother whether that's david it, it, you can make a million connections i mean there, i'm sure thousands of people have seen themselves as yeah. major tom you know so any connection you make like that i i don't think i would i would say it's a stretch yeah and don't mess with major tom if you listen to your mother uh the tune itself is is great it's a back pocket campfire song. You pull this one out at the campfire and, you know, people sing along to it. Everybody knows it. Well, I'm glad you um, mentioned a, a singing it at a campfire. Have you heard the, the demo version, like from the Mercury? Yeah. yeah. Even in its stripped back and most plain, I mean, I hate demos. I've never liked getting bonus uh, editions of albums when it's just a, an extra disc of demos because it's just, it's boring, right? You're just yeah. stripping down all the great instruments and hey, let's just make this a boring acoustic. I've never liked them. But even on that version, you can tell like with all the harmonies and melodies and there's changes, right? There's, there's different yeah. types of melodies. You can tell even just from the acoustic guitar, like this song was gonna be bit like, it's a very catchy and compelling song. Yeah. Even in its most boring form, it's still a good song. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was also supposed to be a duet, right? With John Hutchinson from Feathers. Her the Feathers were Hermione who broke up with them and John Hutchinson and David. David was kind of the leader. He was supposed to do this. It was going to be like John Hutchinson was going to play ground control, right? He sang yeah. that originally, but he ended up moving back home or something. And so that kind of threw a wrench into David's plans. And eventually he just does, he just does it on his own, but it was originally going to be this like duet almost. Right. And the harmony vocals on the album version, is that Hutch or is it, did he leave already? And it's somebody I, else. I think he'd already left. Right. Yeah. Okay. I, All right. Should we, uh, should we move along now? I think we've, we've covered space oddity. It's uh like you said, it's worthy of all of the, the accolades. Um, stone, stone cold classic. I mean, every, I mean, everybody listening is obviously heard the song. It, yeah. It's just, uh, there's not much more to say about it that hasn't been, you know, said and covered a thousand times already. So on to, uh, unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed. This is so Bowie doesn't have to me anyway, many, uh, like summer roll down your window, turn it up drive driving you know home from work on a friday type songs uh but this is probably all you need uh to to get to, you know it's it's a great uh 
kind of bluesy song. You know what? It's it's very Bo Diddley. It's got that Bo Diddley uh, beat that kind of comes riff. in. Yeah. yeah. Um, starts off with a really cool kind of psych intro, though. It uh, sounds like it's going to be another ver. It's going to be like another letter to Hermione. Like we'll, right. we'll get into that next. It, it it catches you off guard when it turns into the the Bo Diddley riff, and it becomes like this Led Zeppelin three almost kind of song. Yes, I. That's funny. I actually wrote down uh, very Led Zeppelin three on here. That is <laughs> wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Zeppelin three is my favorite Zeppelin album uh, for what that's worth. The song is about a man who, well, he's what well, he's unwashed. Uh, he, he's a lower class young man who is looked down at, not only by the masses but by his socially superior middle class girlfriend. Uh, it must strain you to look down so far from your father's house, and I know what allows like me, in his house could do for you. The obvious connection to make here is David's relationship with Hermione, uh, another kind of one of those autobiographical songs, you know. This is perhaps another more blatant example of that. The parallels on this song and the friction between him and Hermione are, are very apparent. The character in this song is embarrassed by the way he's perceived by his girlfriend's family. But what makes it brilliant is that that serves as the foundation of the song. It's the backbone. But the song quickly picks up and starts getting like very ferociously exaggerated. You know, he starts singing, I'm a phallus and pigtails and there's blood on my nose and my tissue is rotting. At this point, David is just having fun. The ties to his relationship with Hermione become less apparent and he starts just getting chaotic. Uh, it sounds like it, it would have been very cathartic for him to just belt all of this stuff out. Like, Lines like, in my head's full of murders, where only killers scream. This, this, the lyrics to the song and the song in general, it just, it all, it just, it really rocks. I cannot for the life of me get enough of this song. In preparation for this episode, I, I couldn't even move on to the next ones. I just got stuck on this one. I must have played it like 10 to 15 times. Wow. Uh, the, the band is rocking. Uh, the, we should talk about the band. Uh, they, well, the majority of the players on it are, were in a band called Junior's Eyes. Um, originally from Hull in, in, in the group, uh, the rats, which is famously where Mick Ronson, Trevor Boulder, Woody Woodmansey, uh, they were in a band with, with those guys who later formed the spiders. Um, it's Benny Marshall on harmonica, uh, who is the vocalist of junior's eyes. And he just, he kicks ass. Like the, the harmonica to me is the highlight of this song. It's very Jagger-esque. It, that harmonica is, is fantastic. It, it belts out the same energy, you know, the same way that David is shouting, yeah. the harmonica shouts. And, and the sentiment of the lyrics are also captured in the harmonica. I can't think of many songs where the harmonica is as important to the song and as much of a match with the vocals and lyrics than right here. Yeah, totally. 
this is kind of like his year blues, isn't it? You know, the, the great Lennon track off the white album, like, you know, where the Eagle picks my eye, the worm, he picks my bone here. You've got like my tissue is rotting where the rats chew my bones and my eye sockets empty. See nothing but pain. You know? Yeah. That's it's yeah. That's very, uh, he, he, you know, he probably drew off of that a little bit. He was probably listening to that song is yeah, it's, it's his, it's definitely his bluesiest song uh, on from this period. Kind of, uh, kind of going back to his his roots with some of the earlier groups he was in. Um, if if those bands that he had formed from you know the the Conrads, the Lower Third, uh, the Buzz, and all those, if they would have amounted to anything, I feel like this song still maybe would have been written and existed. Maybe he was channeling that when he was writing it. He's going back to his roots, and there's also a a little sneak peek, a, a little bit of foreshadowing. Because during that harmonica solo, he belts out a, a vocal vibrato, a, a vibrato. He must have picked that up from Mark Bolin. So I think that is like, a, that's a, kind of like a sneak preview of the glam rock to come. And he does that on, uh, there's a song on the next album that we're going to talk about, Black Country Rock, where he does a, a very similar thing. So we're going a bit backwards and a bit forwards at the same time on this song. Yeah. Yeah, this one's uh, it's it's unique uh, for for Bowie. I, I feel like there aren't many like it uh, in his entire catalog. Maybe like you said, Black Country Rock is kind of similar. It's mm-hmm. uh, this one could have fit on the man who sold the, the world. Uh, we said Led Zeppelin three. To yeah, describe the song. I feel like I'm going to say that when I describe the next record as well. Right. We get to yeah. it. it might be a bit blasphemous, but. I honestly think I might prefer this song to Space Oddity. And that's not even because I feel that Space Oddity has become overplayed or anything. This is like on even playing grounds. Unwashed and Somewhat Slightly Dazed and Space Odyssey both deal with alienation, but it's the attitude on this song, the way in which he's reacting to his isolation. It's a lot more ferocious. It's a lot more angry. It's a lot more rock and roll. It's like borderline proto-punk. While Space Oddity is able to brilliantly mask its underlying themes with all this vivid space imagery, this one is definitely more blunt and in your face. He kind of, you can tell he doesn't give a shit anymore and he's kind of throwing it back at you. It's set up. Yeah, totally. This is also maybe like his most Dylan-esque title, unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed. It it could have been on Blonde on Blonde, you know, way between temporarily like Achilles and absolutely Sweet Marie. Right. Uh, yeah. So onto the letter, thirteenth letter to Hermione. <laughs> or, or are we gonna do "Don't Sit Down"? Does that even count? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. It's it's a little what hidden track. Forty seconds of like, just kind of bluesy studio banter. Yeah, it's it's not, it's really, not on my it, it's not on my version of the. It's album, not on my but... version either. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of like a thing that was really happening at that time. The Beatles were doing a lot of it too, like. Maggie Fade out, come back in. Yeah, the White Album had a lot of weird little, not weird, but a lot of little interludes between yeah. songs. Just, yeah, we don't have to. I mean, there's really nothing much. There's not much it, it, other than it exists. Yeah. <laughs> uh, letter to Hermione, uh, an ode to the twelve-string guitar, perhaps. Uh, this song is just very twelve-stringy. Mm-hmm. Um, I bought a 12 string because of Bowie about oh, 10 years ago now or close to it. 
Um, I don't play it very much, but I've kind of started just recently picking it up again, just because of this album and this song in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's yeah, this is a, it's, it's a nice little kind of folk song. He's yeah. As you mentioned earlier, he's very, you know, hurt by his, the departure of Hermione from his life. He said that he actually wrote her a letter, uh, but decided to write us to turn it into a song instead, uh, put it on the album sent her the album very dramatic very bowie i guess <laughs> it's it's a love letter filled with regrets uh he has lines in here like uh, talking about her new lover right you know he makes you laugh he brings you out in style he treats you well and makes you up real fine by all accounts david was a, a very demanding partner you know he expected food on the table when he got home shirts iron and that sort of thing and he also uh, couldn't for the life of him keep it zipped according to himself and and now he's realizing that it, it, it's not a poor me thing it's a well yeah poor me but you know this is a self-inflicted wound uh, once again very mature for a 22 year old or however old he is on this record yeah there aren't a whole lot of love songs in bowie's catalog uh i, I yeah there, there's there's quite a few but if you're to take the percentage of songs that are kind of written for like about love mm-hmm. compared to say any other band or artist out there at this time anyway, uh, or in the seventies, I, I feel like, I feel like maybe he's a little, that's it's underrepresented kind of in his career. There aren't a, a whole lot of songs where you would put on a Valentine's day playlist or something. You know what I mean? Like he's got a what? lot of characters and other themes that are kind of happening in all of his his work there isn't as much of it well to prove your point he has a song called valentine's day and it is not a happy song <laughs> no a, yes a, a school shooter right so yeah he, he's very much more fascinated with the grotesque with the darker sides of humanity so we don't get many letters to hermione right uh, and and even when he does write love songs, none of them are quite like this either, because this is also like, this is very personal, very direct. He's referring to his ex by name. It, it reminds me a lot of uh, Mount Erie. Have you ever played his album? A crow looked at me. Nope. It's, it's a very sad record. He's writing songs to his dead wife, essentially words can't even describe how gut wrenching of a record it is. So a sad record, but one that's also very intimate. It's very blunt and very plain and very literal. So it's very similar to Letter Hermione, a song for a partner you've lost, obviously to different circumstances, but it's similar in the sense that it's very intimate. It's gentle, it's it's acoustic, and it's a personal song. It almost sounds like something we weren't supposed to hear. Yeah, I can Sp- Space that. Oddity has all these personal undertones but they're all doused in metaphors. Whereas this song is just shamelessly vulnerable and personal. Uh, you know, like I said, mentioning her by name. I, mean, I don't think you'll ever, not many people ever, you know, really do that. It's the bad finger song, baby blue, where he Pete ham, I guess mentions her by name at the end. He says like my, my Dixie, Dixie, Dixie dear. Or yeah. Something. Yeah. Whenever you mentioned by name, when you said that, that's the first thing my mind went to. I don't have much else for a letter to Hermione uh, to add to it. It's uh, it's not one of my favorites. It's not a song that uh, that really stands out for me. So with that said, on to Signet Committee. 
one that does stand out to me. Uh, this one is, it's another one of his early epics, I would say, where it's not necessarily rock opera but it kind of has that feel that it's just something more than just a regular rock song or, or folk rock song or whatever you want to call it. I don't know re- really where to start when, when trying to break down this song. Uh, we're going to have to kind of tackle or chip away at it. Uh, the, the first thing that stands out is it's, it's an earlier version of Time. What of me Who praise their efforts to be free Words of strength and care just kind of neat that he as we talked about on the last uh episode how he liked to to steal or he said that you know geniuses steal from from other artists he he, he at least bore himself from himself later on or it, it kind of makes me think that he he thought wow you know this song didn't get enough credit i really like that part there was something more to it I'm, i gotta reuse that because it's i mean it's i think it's kind of used better on time I, which is a great song but yeah, that that chord progression was was born here. Bowie was beginning to get increasingly frustrated with the hippie movement, right? And that comes out on this record a lot. And especially on this song, it comes yeah. out. Uh, in particular, the hippies he'd encountered while he ran the Beckenham Art Lab. He wanted contributors and collaborators, but all he got were spectators and clinger-ons. He'd called them the laziest people he met in his life and that you know, they had no individuality. They were always looking for people to show them the way and they were so willing to just become followers. He'd spent a lot of time and money and effort helping the cause. He was really wanting Space Oddity to be a hit, not just for himself, but so he could receive funds for the art lab that would open some doors for these kids. But he feels he was used and manipulated there's lines on here like, I gave them life, I gave them all, they drained my very soul dry. You know, the hippie movement was all very fluffy and beautiful on the surface, and David was very much a part of that, right? But the original sentiment of peace and love is something he shared, but as he was able to dig through it all, he realized the nature behind the counterculture wasn't always noble. It was littered with materialism and selfishness, and a, a lot of leaders would begin to exploit this ideology for their own personal gain. And, and many people were willing to follow along mindlessly. And so he began to rightfully, I think, resent it. Yeah, I, I think, and I think maybe he was frustrated that a, a lot of these, these hippies were, they, they would attend these, these rallies and, and they'd gather in parks and like, you maybe ask them, like, what, what are you fighting for? And they didn't even know. They were just there for the drugs, essentially, or, or the good time. Like, I, I think there was a lot. It wasn't very sincere or very genuine. Maybe some of them weren't actually like you were saying that they didn't really believe in something themselves. They were just kind of a part of they wanted to be a part of a movement. But the individuality part was lost from it, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of very relevant today where mm-hmm. a, a lot of people. Um, I mean, I don't want to start calling people in general out but there's a lot of you know that i'll get back to you 
if, or if you ask somebody a question, they'll, they'll get back to you once they look up whatever side they're on's view is on it. Mm-hmm. But that's what's great about Signet Committee is that it's it's very much interested in discrediting and attacking dangerous leaders and not just the leaders, but the people who are stupid enough to follow them. Right. Yeah. I, w- I was talking with a friend of the show, Justin Waterman about this album recently. And he mentioned that this is a highlight for him and one of his favorite Bowie tracks, which I found very interesting because I see a lot of parallels between the sentiment of this song and the album diamond dogs, which is Justin's favorite Bowie record. I'm always fascinated when, especially this early in Bowie's career, we can pick out thoughts of his that become recurring themes. And Signet Committee, it it taps into this pet peeve of mine where people have this temptation to follow leaders. You know, political figures usually, like you said, as if they're a sports team or something. You know, like they're rooting for them. And why? They should work for us. Why are you shilling out for this exploitative piece of shit? Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's 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 actually kind of creepy how ahead of like this if this song set like it could have been written yesterday, it really could have uh, lyrically. I'm glad that you mentioned its relevance today too, because what I also love about this track is its a- ambiguity. Well, Bowie, what he's doing on this track is he's ripping into these hippies for their hypocrisy, for how materialistic they've become, and how. They live by all these shallow slogans about love is all you need and peace on earth. And while that's all great, a lot of them lack empathy for anyone who doesn't share their pie in the sky agenda. And there's also people exploiting this movement, as we've said, for personal gain. And a lot of it becomes very selfish. He kind of mocks this in that line where he goes, you know, all you need is love, kick out the jams, kick out your mother, cut up your friends, screw up your brother. And the slogans start progressing into these, you know, really terrible things. Yeah. You know, and it, Starts you know, off it, with love is all you need. <laughs> It all seems so nice, you know, but for every Woodstock, you know, we have an Altamont. Uh, yeah. There's there's shady guru figures. And I get the worst end of this leader spectrum, I guess, would wind up being someone like Manson. Uh, yeah. But uh, like I was saying, it's really hard to get your thoughts out on this song because it's just such a complex song. But what's incredible is how he's able to maintain a great deal of ambiguity. If you know the meaning of this song, you can pick out what he's referring to specifically. And he gets very vicious and very passionate but he never really calls anyone or anything out specifically, or at least not where it could ruin a, a different interpretation for you. And so this song could take on so many new meanings and, and meanings that ring true. Like you said, in 2021, it's incredible to me that a song so personal has probably spawned thousands of different and relevant interpretations. Yeah. Um, note on the, on the guitar work on it there's a part where it's kind of like the pre-chorus where the guitar just chugs along it's modulated it i'm not sure if it's a it might be like a univibe or something it just sounds incredible um but i was very disappointed when i so i recently purchased the 2019 uh visconti remix of this album and the i I noticed right away that the, the the 12 string was a lot more present uh, in the opening of this song. So I thought, oh, that guitar part is probably going to really, you know, stand out. And he turned it down. And I was just, I was so excited and then so let down when it got to that part. I thought, oh man, that sucks. Um, but it, yeah, it's kind of interesting how they turn, like, and it actually, maybe I'll play it. We'll, we'll snip it in. It, there's actually kind of a, it's almost like he messed up on it where it's like, if there's a real loud, like bang, and then it goes quiet. 
I gave them life, I gave them all They drained my very soul dry I crushed my heart to ease their pains I feel like the reason they may have turned the guitar down is because near the end of this song, I think right before he starts chanting, you know, I want to live, the bass just gets drowned out. The drums really start to pick up. Yeah. And I think the guitar starts to, and I can't hear the bass anymore. So that always bothered me. So I haven't heard the mix you're referring to, but I yeah. feel like that might be why. It's it's a different part. Um, but yeah, you, you're right. And and the bass on this one is great. The intro is is really cool. Um, it's kind of like a, it sounds like a yield West kind of like cowboy bad, lonesome cowboy kind of intro kind of reminds me of the intro to bad meets evil. Eminem oh, and the Eminem Royce and to Royce. five, nine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I really want to like this one more because I think it's a brilliant piece of songwriting and such an incredible feat once again, for someone who was 21 or 22 or whenever he was, when he wrote this, uh, maybe younger, I don't know, but I, I don't love it though. And I really try to, I just feel like it's a sloppy recording or something. And that it was supposed to be grander. The finished product doesn't quite do his damnation enough justice. It, it feels like it needs or is missing something. There's almost, a, there's kind of a lot of space in some spots where there maybe shouldn't be space. It's like a, a light version of what should have been heavier mm-hmm. or, or something. It, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite songs on the album. It's, it's not here, but it's, but it's not one of my favorite Bowie songs because it's just missing a little bit of that, like Bowie magic or something, or yeah, I don't know what it is. It's considered to be like one of his best, right? It's an epic. uh, I think it was number 40 on Mojo's list of top 100 Bowie songs. The only Bowie song from this album, uh, not named space. Like this is the only non space out of the song that made the list, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't want to act like, you know, I, this isn't a bad song, but this is, I'm just kind of explaining, I think you are too, what makes it not like a top 50 Bowie song of all time. For right. Me. It's yeah. still a really good song, but just not, you know, it's not one of his greatest, in my opinion. I, I heard the band was supposedly unrehearsed too. It, it also wasn't like the greatest group of musicians. You'd go on to work with much better ones. You have uh, Mick Wayne on lead guitar and and John Lodge on bass, but not the John Lodge from the Moody Blues. I was really <laughs> many, excited when I I was really excited when I read the book. Yeah, how many bass John players Lodges named John Lodge are there? Are there? Yeah, <laughs> uh, and, you know I think that rough and rugged sound works more on unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed. You know, Sigmet Committee sounds like it, it. They needed it to be a little more colorful to really bring it to life and. I feel like that's where it ultimately falls flat. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that the band wasn't quite as good. It, it's all the guys from the rats that didn't go on to be Bowie's spiders. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you're onto something there. So I guess, well, that's it. We've, uh, we've come to the end of side a of David Bowie's second album space oddity. Uh, join us next week as we flip it over to side B and talk about the tracks that will follow. Uh, Once again, thanks for listening. I'm Jesse. I'm John. The Fantastic Voyage is out.